I'm Derek Thompson, longtime writer with The Atlantic Magazine on tech, culture, and politics. There is a lot of noise out there, and my goal is to cut through the headlines, loud tweets, and hot takes in my new podcast, Plain English. I'll talk to some of the smartest people I know to give you clear viewpoints and memorable takeaways. Plain English starts November 16th. Listen for free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. It's Off the Pike, presented by FanDuel. The second half of the NBA season is here, and you can bet on the action with an assist from FanDuel, America's number one sportsbook. Right now, you can check the new and improved Parlay Hub. Filter by odds, sport, and bet type to easily find the most popular parlays and same-game parlays, all on one page. Plus, start betting on the Explore page and the Pulse and bet live same-game parlays for every NBA game. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit theringer.com slash RG to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of the episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus in president select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit theringer.com slash RG. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. If you're busy like me and you're trying to catch your kids' games, it's important to have somewhere where you can go to find a good hotel. We're all over the place. Sometimes... You know, we're in Florida, we'll be in New York. You want to take the wife on a quick vacation and get away? Whether you're looking for a relaxing getaway or heading out of town to see the playoffs, Hotels.com app has a perfect hotel for every trip. Compare up to five hotels side by side so you can see prices, amenities, and star ratings without having to switch back and forth between options. So start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app today. Welcome into Off the Pike. I'm Brian Barrett. Busy Thursday. We'll talk about the Red Sox with Tyler Milliken from 98.5 The Sports Hub and the name redacted pod in just a little bit. And we'll get into the deadline because will the Red Sox actually get a starter? They just swept the Atlanta Braves, the best team in Major League Baseball. I'm starting to get excited. I'm starting to think the Red Sox are actually going to get a starting pitcher at the deadline. So we'll get into all that. Plus, could they actually trade an outfielder? Could Duvall be on the move since you have a surplus of guys there? And a lot of positive thoughts with this team right now. We'll see what happens when Chris Sale gets back. So we'll get into all that with Milliken. And I also have some positive thoughts about the Patriots receivers I want to get into. And I know you're thinking you have positive thoughts about the Patriots receivers. Yes, I actually do. And I'm going to get into those in just a little bit. But we have to get into the Celts now that Jalen is the $300 plus million man. And what that means, not only for Jalen, but the organization long term. So the reality is, until the Celtics win a championship, there's going to be this narrative, hey, do Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum fit together? Do they make each other better? And you may say, Brian, this is absolutely crazy. They've been to the finals together, and they've been living in the Eastern Conference Finals since they both came into the NBA. But we do understand why these questions come up, right? They play the same position, and they have similar skill sets. And you look at the team that just won the championship, the Nuggets. Yeah, they have the two-time MVP and the best player in the world right now who just so happens to play center in Nikola Jokic. But they also have a guard that fits perfectly with him and Jamal Murray in their two-man game, right? They perfectly complement each other. Tatum and Brown, they've had a ton of success, but their games don't exactly fit like a glove. Now, Tatum is an elite player in the league, and Jalen is an all-star level player. Things could be a lot worse, right? I'm not trying to make it sound like the Celtics have this big, huge problem. They've had a ton of success together, right? And it's just rare, though, to see in the NBA teams winning championships when they're best two players have overlapping skill sets, right? 
So let's look at recent NBA champions and their best two players. So if we look at that Nuggets team I just mentioned, it's a center and a guard in Jokic and Murray. With the 2022 Warriors, Steph obviously was by far their best player, and you can pick their second best player. Now, it was probably Wiggins in the actual final series. He's a wing, not similar to Curry. Draymond probably overall that season, especially he was great defensively in the playoff run. He's a facilitator, a playmaker. He's not a guy that needs the ball to score. And even a guy like Klay Thompson, he's not really an on-ball guy, right? Where Klay Thompson, remember famously, he scored 60 points with 11 dribbles in a game. So Steph and Klay actually complement each other really well. Because when Klay is doing all this crazy off-the-ball stuff, Steph's doing his thing with the ball, right? So those guys fit together perfectly. Then you look at the 2021 Bucks. So Giannis is the best player, and he's a forward slash big and Drew Holiday or Chris Middleton, their second best player. Remember, Middleton that season was north of 41% on threes, and Holiday was at six assists per game. Giannis was at 20.8 points per game in the paint during that playoff run. That led the NBA. So basically, he operated inside. Those guys operated outside, so they complemented each other perfectly. You go to the 2020 Lakers, who won in the bubble. They had LeBron, the greatest point forward in the history of the league, and they had Anthony Davis, who was a big. At that point, Anthony Davis actually had the best shooting stretch of his entire career. He's never regained that. But nonetheless, he was also the best defender in the postseason that year. And LeBron was really the maestro of the offense, right? LeBron was the on-ball guy. Davis was the finisher as a roller. And that year, he shot the ball well in that run to the NBA championship as well. So you had a guy that could pick and pop. You had a guy that could roll to play a perfect two-man game with LeBron. And defensively, Davis was so great. So those guys fit together really well. Then you look at the 19 Raptors, Kawhi. Yes, you had Siakam at forward on that team, but their second best player was Lowry. Lowry averaged 15 points per game during the playoff run, 6.6 assists. And you had guys like Lowry and Van Fleet on that team that could sort of space the floor, right? Lowry took six threes a game, Van Fleet hit 38.8% of his threes during that run, and even Gasol took 3.7 threes per game and shot 38.2%. So yeah, Siakam likes to operate in similar areas of the floor, but he wasn't up the pecking order at that particular point in time. Like right now, he's the best player on the Raptors, but at that point, he really wasn't even the second best player. And that was more of an ensembled cast around Kawhi than having a definitive number two guy permanently. So those guys really fit well around Kawhi. And also, they were all great defenders. Then you look at the 2018 Warriors, where you had Steph and Durant, the guard and the swing man, not overlapping skills whatsoever. This was basically having two of the best three players in the world at that time, along with LeBron. And it actually made Durant's life really easy because Curry and Durant, they were so good together because you always had to be occupied by Curry where Durant could score so easily. He's one of the best one-on-one scorers we've seen in the history of the sport. And now he's got Steph Curry on his team. It's almost like they broke the league. So those guys fit together really well. And the 2017 Warriors, we don't have to go through that because that's the same team. The 2016 Cavs, you had Kyrie and LeBron, the guard and the point forward. It was sort of reversed, right? Where LeBron, he still averaged 26.3 points per game in that run, but he also averaged 7.6 assists where... That was almost like, hey, LeBron's running the offense, and this when Kyrie was at his best, where Kyrie could just operate in isolation. So Kyrie was the scorer, the finisher, and LeBron scored a ton of points, but he was facilitating. Those guys fit really well together, the wing and the guard. 2015 Warriors don't really have to go through that since we already mentioned it with the 2022 Warriors. The 14 Spurs, I would say at that point, Tony Parker was their best player. Postseason average 17.4 and 5 assists. And I know Kawhi won finals MVP because of his defense, 
but he was not Kawhi yet, right? And whether you say it's Kawhi, Duncan, whatever it is, it's a point guard and a big and a swingman. So those skill sets, they really complement each other well. So we'll come back to 12 and 13 for a second here because that's the similarity to the Celtics. But 11 Mavs, Dirk and Jason Terry, a big and a guard, not overlapping skill sets. And in fact, they had a really good two-man game together. The 2010 Lakers, I hate to bring this up because it's the Lakers, but you had a guard and a big in Kobe and Gasol. Same thing with 09, of course. And then in 08, of course, you had a big in KG, and then you had a wing in Pierce, and you had another shooter in Ray Allen. But your two best players, the wing and the center, they don't overlap. So that's going through the last 15 years. The one team that has done it where the two guys have overlapping skill sets, that's in 12 and 13 with LeBron and Wade. That's the most similar example to the Celtics group, and it's really the only example in recent history. So we've seen this happen. Guys with overlapping skill sets win championships together, just two of the last 15 title teams, right? So that means 13 of the last 15 have won with guys with complementary skills, a big and a guard or a wing and a guard, right? So how do the Celtics replicate what the Heat did? So now that Jalen is this $300 million man, it's on him. So the overlapping skill set thing has been okay and more than okay with both those guys on the court together, right? So if you look at the numbers last season, Tatum and Jalen on the court together, 120.2 offensive rating. And remember, the Kings led the NBA this past season with a 118.6 rating. So the Celtics are basically, with those two guys on the court, they're better than the league's best offense. So it works when they're on the court together. They also had a plus 5.7 net rating, which means they outscored teams by 5.7 points per 100 possessions. So that's really good, but it would have been second in the league behind who? The Celtics at plus 6.7. So wait. How can that be true if Jalen and Tatum are your two best players? Well, getting back to this whole thing of complementing each other. So if you look at when Tatum played without Jalen, the Celtics had a 122 offensive rating, okay, and a plus 12 net rating. So think about that. The Celtics with Tatum and no Jalen were 6.3 points per 100 possessions better with Tatum and Jalen on the court together. So more than doubled. And that 5.3 points per 100 better than the league's best net rating. That's how good it was with Tatum and not Jalen Brown. So what about Jalen without Tatum? Okay, this is where it gets interesting and kind of concerning. A 113.7 offensive rating. That would have ranked 24th in the league. And so you go from the best offense in the league with just Tatum to the 23rd offense with just Jalen. Together, you're still the league's best offense. So they can play together. They can play with just Tatum on the court, but they can't play with just Jalen on the court to a high level of success. So the conclusion is Jalen, of course, needs to be better leading that second unit, if you will, or leading a different group of players. And here's the thing. I just don't think that Jalen is capable of doing that without a lot of help. We know the ball doesn't move the same with Jalen on the court compared to off the court. We've given you just the offensive rating and the impact numbers are actually bad with Jalen. They get better when he's off the court. And we know Jalen, he has his dribbling issues, right? But he's also not a good passer. We always look at the turnovers and stress on that, but he's really not a good passer. If you look at this past season, he had a 1.18 assist to turnover ratio of players listed as guards, because Jalen was last year, that had played at least 30 minutes per game. Only Kelly Oubre and DeAndre Hunter were worse in terms of their assist to turnover ratio. So Jalen's really bad when it comes to that. So the point of this is Jalen is never going to be the hub of the offense like Tatum can be. He's not a creator. So you're paying him $300 million to be a play finisher, essentially. So that type of player doesn't scream supermax. But the Celts, they didn't have a choice. What are they going to do? Trade him to another team and knock him a supermax? It just, when he's a rental, it just doesn't make any sense. So you had no leverage. And secondarily, yes, 
Jalen is limited as a player, but he does a lot of things well. He averaged 26.6 points per game, which was ninth in the NBA. So I'm not trying to be very critical of Jalen. I'm just saying he has his weaknesses, but he's still a really, really good player. So how do you fix these non-Tatum minutes now that you're paying Jalen all this money? You would think the answer is he's just got to fill it up. The problem is I don't think you can be successful with Jalen by himself sort of leading the second unit. So my answer is I would have Tatum lead the bench mob. Tatum plays well with everyone. Jalen needs help. So give Tatum the rest early and keep Jalen on the court with your third and fourth best players in Derek White and Kristaps Porzingis. What Jalen needs is he needs a playmaker in Derek White. And if you look at Jalen and White on the court together last year, a plus 10.2 net rating and a 119.8 offensive rating, White can be sort of the table setter for that group. And then Porzingis can give Jalen a guy to run the pick and roll with, and he can space the floor 38%, as we said, or north of 38% from deep last season, which opens up the lane for Jalen and maybe he'll turn the ball over less because he'll have more space to operate with, right? So you keep your third and your fourth best player on the floor with Jalen to make life easier for him. And with Tatum, it doesn't really matter. If you look at Tatum, all these guys that he played with last year, Tatum and Al, 120.1 offensive rating, better than the league's best. Tatum and Brogdon together, 116.4 offensive rating. That would have been six, so still really good. Tatum and Hauser, 117.2, third best it would have been in the league. Tatum and Rob, 120.8, better than the league's best. Rob Williams, of course, I'm alluding to there. So he basically plays at an elite level with anyone, and he loves playing with Rob. So I would just rely on Tatum with the bench mob and keep the other top players like Derek White and like Kristaps Porzingis paired together with Jalen Brown to make his life easier. And I think Porzingis could be great for Jalen just in terms of that spacing and whatnot. And big picture, Tatum is the far superior player and more impactful as evident by all the stuff I just laid out. So it may seem like Jalen is here forever now that he just signed for $304 million, but essentially you now have this window where you have to win in the near future because they've now had two years where they're basically the main pieces. They haven't won a championship. If we get into this thing and we're five years into it and Jalen's getting paid all this money and the Celtics haven't won a championship yet, they're not trading Jason Tatum. They'll be trading Jalen Brown away. So I hope it all works out for these guys. And that's my suggestion for how it can work out this year. But now the pressure really is on Jalen to win a championship and prove these guys can fit together. All right, so I do want to stay with this Celtics theme. And one of the other things that came up at that Jalen Brown press conference was Joe Mazzulla said that Derek White is the starting point guard. Now, nobody's surprised by that. In fact, we would have been surprised if he went up there and said, hey, Malcolm Brogdon's a starting point guard. So finding out that Derek White is the starting point guard for the Celtics this upcoming season, nobody's shocked by that whatsoever. But I did want to take a look at what Derek White looks like as a starting point guard. So last season, this is via cleaning the glass, 21% of his minutes came at point guard, 71% at shooting guard, played some small forward as well. But the reason that 21%, reason that number is there and 71% at shooting guard is because of Marcus Smart. So he didn't have the point guard duties, if you will. Okay, so if you look at the point guard minutes, just the point guard minutes, that 21% of his minutes... The Celtics had a 121.9 offensive rating. That was in the 93rd percentile. Their effective field goal percentage was at 58.1%. That was in the 93rd percentile. And if you look at the defensive rating, this is the big one. 106.2 defensive rating, 96th percentile. So that means the net rating, the points per 100 possession. The Celtics outscored teams by 15.7 points per 100 with Derek White as the point guard last season. That was in the 99th percentile people okay so Derek White as the Celtics point guard was basically one of the most dominant lineups in the entire NBA for a few reasons right 
The defense was actually nearly, as we said, three points better with White at point guard than shooting guard. So why is the defense so good? Well, it's pretty self-explanatory. When Derek White plays point guard, the Celtics are fucking huge. You have Tatum, you have Brown, you have White, and you have two bigs. I mean, you could also throw like a Hauser in there if you really wanted to, but the team is huge if Derek White is the smallest guy on the court and he's the only traditional guard, so to speak, right? There's no real place to attack the defense. And we've said, offensively, White is sort of that connector, right? And the Celtics, I feel like there's been this theme around the organization for a couple of years, not the actual organization, but us in the fan base where we say like, hey, they need this Chris Paul type point guard, right? But I really don't think that's the case. I think they need somebody like Derek White that moves the ball quickly, right? He's a good screener. He moves the ball quickly, makes good decisions. So I think what we're going to get is just more of what Derek White does well. He doesn't have to change his game just because he's going to be introduced as the starting point guard. So I went back to the trade two years ago, too. When he came over to the Celtics, he played via cleaning the glass 13% of his minutes at point guard. The Celtics in those minutes had a 139.2 offensive rating and a plus 25.8 net rating. They were dominant when he played point guard when he just came over and he hadn't played with any of these guys. It just sort of illustrates. These are the numbers when he just got to the Celtics, how easy it is to play with Derek White. He's such a great defender. And the opposing defense is going to be smaller with him on the court, right? Where you think about it, most teams have two guards. And the other team is going to be much smaller than the Celtics when you have Derek White as the only guard in the court. Okay, so if you go back to his last full season in San Antonio, the year before the trade, he played 13% of his minutes at point guard. In that season, the Spurs, they had a 12.2 net rating, 97th percentile. The team wasn't good. And with Derek White as the point guard and sort of the head of the defense, 12.2 net rating. They outscored teams by more than 12 points per 100 possessions. So I think at times we get caught up in this whole idea of the point guard position. But what we found out is when Derek White just has the point guard title, if you will, the Celtics were one of the best teams in the NBA and they outscored teams by 16 points per 100, basically. So it isn't like Derek White is going to be asked to do things differently. It's just he's going to get more opportunities and we're going to see more of what he does well for an extra four to five minutes per game, right? And now that the team is thinner, it's going to mean even more Derek White, right? So the one area I think that he's going to get some more opportunities would be just as a pick and roll ball handler, especially with another screen setter in Porzingis to go along with Rob and Al. And Derek White makes really good decisions in the pick and roll. And I think last year when you have Grant, he's kind of limited when it comes to the pick and roll. Like he can set a screen and all that, but he's not exactly going to roll. Porzingis can certainly supply that element. And White was pretty good when it came to being a pick and roll ball handler. He ranked in the 68th percentile but he was only at 2.7 possessions per game. So you would expect that number to go up. But the big thing is when I look at this team, people talk about the defense is going to slip without Marcus and Grant. And I would argue it could actually be better. That starting lineup is going to be impossible. Absolutely impossible to score on. 106.2 defensive rating. The best defense in the league last year was 109.9. Derek White at point guard, 106.2, Okay. So it just tells you how dominant that group can be. And then if you look at Smart, the Celtics were 3.4 points per 100 worse with Smart on the floor, or they were 3.4 points per 100 worse on defense via cleaning the glass with Smart on the floor. That was in the 22nd percentile. And they were plus 0.8, or they were 0.8 points per 100 worse with Grant on the court via cleaning the glass. And if you look at Smart at the point guard, a 113.6 defensive rating, 53rd percentile, Remember with White, we told you that number was at about 106, 96 percentile. 
So maybe Smart bounces back this year, but remember, for large stretches last season, he wasn't a good defensive player. Now, part of that could have been the injury stuff, but remember, we talked about it on the pod. Like, he does not look the, the same guy athletically. So when you look at Derek White on the floor without Marcus Smart this past season, 117.6 offensive rating for the Celtics. That would have ranked second in the NBA. 107.6 defensive rating. That would have ranked first in the NBA. And a plus 10 net rating. That would have ranked first in the NBA. Okay, so basically... You're first in offense, you're first in net rating, and you're set or your second in offense, you're first in defense, and you're first in net rating with Marcus on the floor without Marcus Smart or with Derek White on the court without Marcus Smart. Sorry, getting my point guards confused here. Okay, how about Smart without Derek White? 116.1 offensive rating. That would that would have been good. Six in the NBA. Or it was good. Would have been six in the NBA. The defense, though, with Smart as the only guard, no Derek White, 115.6. That would have been 23rd in the league. And the net rating, 0.5, that would have been 17th. Okay, so basically with Marcus and no Derek White, you're 17th in terms of where you rank in the league and you're 23rd on defense. Okay, so we're talking about the profile of this team with and without Marcus Smart. Well, with Derek White and without Marcus Smart, you look like the best team in the NBA. And look. All the evidence points to more white means a better team. And just looking at the point guard numbers, it tells you that even more so than when he's the only guard that's out there for the Celtics. When he's the primary guard, this team is almost impossible to beat from a statistical standpoint. And look, I hope the best for Mark is smart, but I think we're really going to find out next season that subtracting one of these guards, now obviously I would have preferred it to be Brogdon, but subtracting one of these guards, and now that it's smart and not Brogdon, you have the ability to just give the keys to Derek White. And that's why I think they mentioned that at the press conference. Like, you're announcing a guy's the starting point guard when everybody knows he's the starting point guard. They're saying, like, hey, man, this is this is your opportunity. You were arguably our second best player last year. Most would say our third best player last year. Go with it, man. This is your opportunity. So I cannot wait to see this. And I think the numbers are going to be really good. All right. So I do want to get into some Patriots, as I mentioned, about the receivers. So if you look at this, the whole training camp is underway and all that, and I know everybody is tweeting out the statistics. I don't understand why people get mad about people tweeting out the statistics. Like, I'm not saying that's the be-all, end-all, but I like to be updated on what's going on at training camp. But nonetheless, anyway, so we know this Patriots offense needs to be way better on third down. They were at 34.9% last season, which was 27th in the NFL when you look at their third down conversion rate. So Mac Jones had a completion percentage of just 58% on third down. That ranked 19th of the 24 players that attempted at least 90 third down passes. So Mac, 19th out of 24. His passer rating, 82.7, 15th out of 24. So whether you look at rating, whether you look at completion percentage, neither one was good. Okay, and I get it. A lot of this has to do with the scheme, right? But the bottom line is they need to be better on third down. They need to be better everywhere, quite frankly. But part of being better on third down is first and second down. We talked about that last week when I was talking about feeding Ramondre more and more play action. But one of the things I was looking at is Juju Smith-Schuster on third down last season. 336 yards. That was the 12th best in the entire league. He actually had 218 yards after the catch on third down. You know where that ranked in the NFL? Number one in the league. Juju Smith-Schuster on third down in terms of yak. So I get the reaction as well. Hey, yeah, Travis Kelsey was their main guy. And the defense was worried about Kelsey. I get all that. Okay, I totally do. But Juju was still beating corners in those situations. And do you really think teams are going to double Juju? Because if teams are paying all their attention to Juju, these other guys are going to get easy opportunities. I just don't see that being the case. And if that is the case, guys will get an easy advantage, right? But anyway, 
We've been over the yak stuff with Juju on multiple occasions on the pod. Why he's an upgrade from Jacoby Myers when it comes to that. But one of the other things is another skill that we haven't brought up about what he does better than Jacoby Myers. Juju has the Edelman-Welker skill, okay? A guy that can uncover quickly in short areas, okay? As good as Jacoby was, that's not his skill set. He doesn't get open quickly. He's not great in short spaces. He's a great player, really good player. But Juju has that same skill that Edelman and Welker had, right? If you look at Juju's average air yards when targeted, 7.4. That was the 30th lowest, so 30th out of 122 qualified receivers and tight ends. Jacoby Myers was at 9.7. That was 59th, right? If you're looking at it from the low to the high. So Juju, 2.3 yards shorter in 29 spots higher on that list, right? So one thing that we've talked about with Juju is... Mac doesn't have a number one guy, and I don't think Juju Smith-Schuster is a number one guy, but Juju Smith-Schuster is a bailout guy, and that's something that Mac Jones has not had over the past few seasons here with the Patriots. He doesn't have that bailout guy where he knows, hey, third down, I'm going to this guy. Brady knew on third down, Welker's going to get open. Edelman's going to get open. Mac is going to know that Juju Smith-Schuster, he's been doing this for years now. He's great in short areas. On third down, this is the guy you're going to because you know he's going to get open. It's just such an under-the-radar thing with the Patriots where they've been missing this. And we've always, myself included, we get caught up in the legit bona fide number one receiver. I mean, I've talked about this multiple times, right? But they've never replaced the Edelman role. Jacoby Myers, yeah, you may say, okay, he's a slot receiver, but he's not the same type of player as Edelman is in terms of in those short areas. Juju Smith-Schuster, they finally have a guy post-Edelman. I know we always talk about filling Gronk's shoes, but now you've actually filled Edelman's shoes. Okay, now I want to get to Devontae Parker because if you look at it, he's such a fascinating player to me to like sort of judge if he's going to be good or not. And you know me in the past, I have not been the biggest Devontae Parker fan, but I do have some level of optimism and I'll get into this in a second here, but If you look at some of the numbers, 1.7 yards of separation per target, that was last in the NFL, okay? So he doesn't get open. And when targeted, 90.7 rating, that was 57. Those are the concerns. But what are the strengths? Okay, so 15.7 average targeted air yards, right? Where we're talking about Juju's the opposite, where Juju gets targeted close to the line of scrimmage. That's the second deepest in the NFL last season, Devontae Parker. Only Gabe Davis was targeted further down the football field than Devontae Parker. Now, 14.3 yards per catch the last three seasons prior to the Patriots. That was the ninth best in the entire NFL. So they're big plays when he catches the ball. If you look at last year, 17.4 yards per reception. That was fourth in the NFL. Find only Jalen Waddell, Terrence Marshall, and Gabe Davis. He also had 10 contested catches. That was 30th, and he needs that because he doesn't get the separation. If you go from 19 to 2021, he actually had uh, 57 contested catches, according to Pro Football Focus. That was the best mark in the entire NFL during that 19 to 2021 stretch. Okay, now a concern is he only played 13 games last season, and that's been an issue with him. 16 games just once in his career. But he also had, if you look at his catch percentage last year, 66% career high. Now, the 47 total targets, 139th in the NFL, that's just not nearly going to do it. Next season, he's going to have to get targeted more. But two years ago, that number was at 73 which was tied for 33rd, and he only played in 10 games, right? So you're thinking about 7.3 a game. You do that over 17 games, so 124, which would have ranked 23rd in the league. So his contract, the thing about the reason I bring up the targets and the games is just the contract is very incentive-based, gets about 70 grand per game, so he's going to want to play. And if you look at Mac Jones, sort of like looking at the two guys, because 
I don't think he's the perfect player to play with Mac. I think Juju makes more sense to them. Guys that can do things after the catch. But if you want to make an argument for why he makes sense with Mac Jones, 15.2% of Mac's passing attempts last season traveled at least 20 yards. That was the ninth highest rate in the NFL. You wouldn't think that. Maybe at the beginning of the season you would have thought that, but not in totality for the season. Okay, so there was an emphasis to get more chunk plays, and really, Parker is that guy. Juju, as we mentioned, he gets targeted in the short area. And the only other downfield threat you have is Tyquan Thornton. We'll get into that in a second here. But there is inexperience there with Thornton. I'll get into him in a second. But if you look at Gasecki and Henry, those are guys that play in the middle of the field. Juju's the yak guy. And Bourne's a yak guy as well. And he's not a guy that gets outside the numbers like Devontae Parker does. And they gave Devontae Parker an extension to be that X receiver, right? So the point is, you know what his skill set is. Contested catch guy that works outside the numbers. If you're extending him, you didn't get Hopkins, who is better in terms of he has a very similar skill set to Parker. He's just a better player. It means you're planning on Parker being a big part of this offense, right? So I believe we see Devontae Parker have the second best year of his career. That's what I think is going to happen this season because he's going to be a focal point of this offense. Even if I disagree with it in principle, like I would have rather have Hopkins, he's going to be like a focal part of this offense, right? So if you go back to 2019, he went for north of 1,200 yards. That's with Ryan Fitzpatrick, who that year Fitzpatrick, here's the difference between Mac, 20.9% aggressiveness rating. That basically just means how often are you throwing into tight windows where the defender is one yard or less away. That was the fourth highest rate in the NFL that year for Ryan Fitzpatrick. So more than a fifth of his passes were into tight windows. If you look at Parker that season, 22 contested catches, fifth most in the league. It makes sense, right? Because the quarterback's throwing into tight windows a lot. Mack last season was at 14% in terms of his tight window throws. That was 26 in the NFL. Now, early on, he was very high in this category the first couple of weeks, especially the Ravens game where they really featured Parker, although Mack threw two interceptions targeting Parker that game. But we did see them cool down on that. I think part of that was Bill was upset about the turnovers, right? That's one thing that really fucking pisses off Bill is turning the football over. So my imagination on that is Mack was sort of scared to take those shots down the football field. So... I don't want to see Mac be crazy with this, being reckless and throwing into tight windows all the time, but you don't re-sign Devontae Parker if you're not planning on taking more shots down the football field because it's not like he has another thing to bring down the table. It's contested catch guys, contested catches rather, outside of the numbers. So I'm going to be fascinated to see sort of how many targets he gets, but you th think about it, you're going to need to keep defenses honest on the outside, and he's the guy that has proven he can do this in the past. Like, yeah, I'm, I don't, I'm not the biggest Devontae Parker fan, but now that he's here and Hopkins isn't, I'm kind of thinking like he's going to be a big part of this offense, and we're going to see Mac Jones be a little bit more aggressive. And I wonder last year if there was just too much scar tissue with Bill being so upset with him that he didn't want to take chances. Like, he was always almost scared. All right, so that brings me to Tyquan Thornton. They spent a second-round pick on him. And remember, you didn't draft a receiver early in the draft this year. You did later, but not early. So you want to see major progress in year two. Now, in fairness to Thornton last year, the injury completely killed him, right? But not completely killed him. That's the wrong terminology. But he killed his progress, right? <laughs> I mean, I don't mean to say it killed his progress. All right. But anyway, so his 4.2840 time at the Combine two years ago was the fastest for receivers, and it was the third fastest overall. And we had my buddy Kyrie Thompson on a couple of weeks ago, and he mentioned that Bill O'Brien got a lot out of Will Fuller. So I went back, and if you look at the Texans, they drafted Will Fuller in 2016. So O'Brien drafted a speed threat in Will Fuller, a burner. He wanted to enhance his offense, right? And at that point, remember, 
he had a contested catch guy in Hopkins. The Patriots have a contested catch guy. Not as good, but Devontae Parker, they had DeAndre Hopkins to put in the outside a contested catch guy. So if you look at Will Fuller at the 2016 Combine, he ran a 4-3-2-40, the fastest time for a receiver, sound familiar, and the second fastest time overall. Okay, so Will Fuller rookie year, if you, I'm going from his rookie year on, he was at 13.5 yards per reception, that was 38th. And then in 2017, that number went up to 15.1, that was 17th. And 18, that went to 15.7, that was 12th. 13.7 the following year, 39th. And in 2020, he was at 16.6 yards per reception. That was sixth in the entire NFL. I don't put a lot of stock into the drop-off in that 2019 season because he was banged up. But you're looking at three seasons where he's over 15 in terms of the yards per reception. And then if you just look at the targeted air yards. So this is from... The deepest to the shortest in terms of the air yards. In 2016, the average target in terms of where he was in the field, 16.3 yards. That was the fourth highest in the NFL. In 2017, that was at 15.6. That was fourth. In 2018, a little bit of a drop off, 14.6, 12th. And then 2019, 14 as well. That was 17th. So four straight years in the top 20, three in the top 15, and two in the top five in terms of where he's being targeted. Okay? So if you look at it right now, Will Fuller was not a perfect player and could never stay on the field, but he was certainly utilized with Bill O'Brien. So Bill O'Brien wanted a deep threat with the Texans to make his offense work, right? And to give that threat down the field to keep defenses honest, any of the cliches you want to use. But what does this offense lack? It lacks explosiveness. Juju is going to do his damage quickly, like we said, near the line of scrimmage, but he's not going down the field. You have Parker that's going to be doing his damage on the outside, but he's more of a contested catch guy as we just got into. Thornton is a pure speed guy that puts the defense in a bind. So I believe Thornton, even if he has limitations physically right now, I believe Bill O'Brien is going to want to make Thornton a weapon and sort of create easier opportunities for him getting off the line of scrimmage because he knows how imperative it is to have that deep threat in the offense. That's why he drafted Will Fuller in the first round in 2016 to have that element to the offense, right? This is in sort of Bill O'Brien's ethos. He wants a legitimate bona fide deep threat. Tyquan Thornton is that type of player. Okay. And the Patriots, by the way, they want him to work, right? How often have we talked about the failed early round draft picks at the receiver position for Bill? He needs to hit on this one, right? And a speedster to me is like a great shooter in the NBA. You can't leave J.J. Redick, right? He opens up the offense. If Tyquan Thornton can stay on the field and produce and make the defense actually respect him. If he has a couple of these deep catches early on in the season and opposing defenses are now game planning and they have to be like, okay, we know when he's on the field, we got to make sure that he doesn't get on top of the safety. We have to be careful with this guy. Well, it creates opportunities for other guys. So they got to find a way to weaponize the speed. And I do think that Bill O'Brien, based on the Will Fuller experience with the Texans, can certainly implement that into the Patriots offense. All right, one concern I have with Bill O'Brien, and this is an overall concern with the team. The Patriots were dead last in the NFL last season. We talked about it a bunch in red zone offense. They scored touchdowns on just 42.2% of their red zone trips. Now, the good news is in 2021, that number was at 63.1%. That was the seventh best in the NFL, okay? So can O'Brien get them back to at least mediocre? Well, I was looking at his Houston tenure, and here's where he ranked in touchdown percentage in the red zone. 14, he was 14th. 15, he was 14th. 16, he was 31st. 17, he was 20th. 18, he was 28th. And 19, he was ninth. Okay, so now, obviously, he was fired in the 2020 season after like four games. That's why I didn't put 2020 in. But if you look at it, so just one top 10 finish in terms of the red zone offense. 
he was, if you look at it, 20th or worse three times. So over six years, he averaged about 23rd in terms of his red zone offense when he was the head coach of the Houston Texans. Now, 14, just to put some context on this, he had Fitzpatrick, Keenum, and Mallett. He didn't have, he did, though, have Foster and Hopkins, I should say, and Andre Johnson. So if you're looking at it in 14, that's actually probably pretty good for the quarterbacks. He had 14th. In 15, he had Hoyer, Mallett, Yates, had Hopkins, and Foster actually got hurt that season. So 15, that 14th, that's probably as good as you were going to get. If you look at 16, you had Osweiler. (laughs) I forgot he was a quarterback at the NFL. Lamar Miller had a good season that year in Hopkins, so you wouldn't expect big things that year. 17, Watson, as a rookie, he gets hurt. He did play seven games, and they did have Hopkins, so that number in 17, a 20th, maybe you thought it'd be a little bit better, but you understand it because of the Hopkins, or because of the Watson injury. In 18, you had Watson and Hopkins, and you were 28th in red zone offense. That's the one that sticks out to me. In 19, you were 9th. Okay, so that was a good number. So maybe he was on to something later in his tenure with the Houston Texans where it's like, oh, now he's really got the red zone thing taken care of. But that's a big thing. Overall, he did not have a ton of success in terms of the red zone. And that's something that that certainly the Patriots need to improve. And I'm not telling you this defines Bill O'Brien, like what he did in the red zone when he was with the Houston Texans. But I do think it's something to look at this year because clearly the Patriots are not a team where they're just going to be able to score quickly. So they got to cash in on those red zone trips. I mean, think about it last year. If they were just 15th in red zone offense, they would have had a real chance to make it into the postseason. All right, a lot more to get into, including Tyler Milliken from 98.5. The Sports Hub is going to join us in just a little bit. We'll get into the Red Sox as we creep closer to the trading deadline in Major League Baseball. The U.S. women's soccer team is taking on the world, and you can take home bonus bets every time they win with FanDuel, because right now, new customers get $100 in bonus bets guaranteed, plus another $10 in bonus bets for every USA win. Just download FanDuel's top-rated sportsbook app and sign up between now and August 3rd. Then place your first $5 bet to unlock your bonus bets. That way, you'll be all set to bet on everything from total goals to player props all tournament long. However you want to play, don't miss your chance to get $10 in bonus bets for every USA win. Plus $100 in bonus bets guaranteed. Make every moment more with FanDuel, America's number one sportsbook. Must be 21 plus and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit theringer.com slash RG. First online real money wager only. $10 deposit required. Refund issued as non-withdrawable bonus bets, which expire in seven days. Restrictions apply. See full terms at fanduel.com slash sportsbook. Welcome back into Off the Pike. Joining us now from 98.5 The Sports Hub, it is Tyler Milliken, also the name Redacted Pod. We had Milliken on before the season, did some over-unders, some predictions. I think it's gone better than we thought it would go so far, Milliken. I mean, you got to be feeling pretty good right now. They just swept the Atlanta Braves, so I don't know if you knew this. They were the best team in baseball. Uh, This is great news to hear, but you know, 14 and (laughs) 5, you've been the best team in baseball in July, and Really, it's been about a month straight where they've skipped the super big ups and downs that were plaguing them before. I had them at 85 wins going into the year. They're at 87 right now. Technically, if they were to stay on pace, I feel pretty good. Obviously, it's been a little different than I think some are a little more different than how some of us would have imagined. But it's a good time for Red Sox fans for Heim Bloom. Deadline's going to really direct it in a lot of ways as well. But it's exciting. That's all you can ask for with this team. All right, so before we get into some of the guys in particular and the trading deadline and some of the guys coming back, I wanted to get your favorite part of the season so far, like your favorite storyline. Is it Yoshida where he's now, and I know not a lot of people love the batting title anymore, but I think it'd be pretty cool if he won the batting title in his first year as a major league player. He's at what, 316 right now? I think the only guy ahead of him is Yandy Diaz, but six in strikeout rate too. So that's been a cool story, especially considering 
the Red Sox got shit on for signing him and overpaying for him. My whole thought of that from the beginning was just like, you're the Red Sox. If you want to overpay for a guy, why should we care? We complain when they don't pay guys. Why would we care if they overpay? But then there's the Duran storyline where he comes up and he's just incredible. And then he has that stretch where he struggles and you're thinking to yourself, oh, oh no, is this last year all over again? And then he gets it back together. I give him a lot of credit for that. The Bayo emergence as the top guy in the rotation. That's been fun to watch. And now more recently, the Tristan Casa situation where he's just been electric or maybe it's a different one so what's your favorite storyline been so far this season it's hard like I want to cheat and tell you it's just like the young guys and you know Heim Bloom kind of getting his vision to start to come to fruition you're seeing for the first time a lot different than 2021 where let's be real the engine was still what Dave Dombrowski built Bloom had just done a great job adding to the ends of that roster and kind of completing the puzzle this time no the engine is built by Bloom and you can say all right this thing's going to run for another four or five years if you're asking me for one player, though, it's Tristan Casas. For me, as a prospect guy, and it's been a long time coming, he was the face that we were waiting for over these years. Obviously, drafted during the Dombrowski era, but you know he was the main name. We saw Jaron Duran explode up through the rankings and ride his ups and downs. But when people wanted to make fun of the Red Sox and Bloom, it was always, "Oh, you're waiting on Tristan Casas." You know, you got Bobby Dalvik at first base for a while. Well, now you see it, and I think part of it's been what we saw this year, where. You know, I felt like the Tristan Casas hype during spring training reached its peak level. You had that walk off homer and everyone's like, this is the guy. We all see it. It took a bad month of baseball, a really bad month of baseball, and everyone wrote him off. Now, really dating back to May, he's been excellent. You look at what? All the way back to May 1st, it's 296, 389, 544, 933 OPS. It's a 152 way to run straight plus. If you can't respect that and you go to June 1st and it's even crazier, I don't know what to tell you. But I think we're looking at a guy really transform into that middle of the order bat, someone that's going to be able to anchor this lineup for a long time. My favorite thing, you pull up Matt Olson's baseball savant page right now. It is nearly identical to Tristan Casas. And we heard the Freddie Freeman comps, right? The Joey Votto comps before. I think Matt Olson's the one you should really be paying attention to because top 10 in weighted runs created plus amongst all first basemen, top eight in OPS, tied for seventh in OBP. He's 23 years old. This isn't Jaron Duran at 26. You know, this is a guy in his first full first full big league season that's showing you I'm here, I'm legit, I'm controlling at bats, I'm calling a timeout before I hit my two homers off Max Scherzer. How doesn't that excite you as a Red Sox fan? Yeah, Milliken, you know what? I actually had that same comparison like two pods ago where I compared him to Matt Olson because the thing that sticks out to me more so with Olson than those other guys is the raw power, right? Because you th- look at Olson from 19 to now 23 outside of 2020 because of the shortened COVID season he hit 30 home runs every year and now when I look at Casas I don't think that's out of the realm of possibility like in all likelihood this is going to be his worst year in terms of his home run total and he's still most likely going to hit over 20 home runs especially the way he's going lately I mean you look at just July the guy's first in baseball and slugging percentage in OPS he's been phenomenal and to your point about Scherzer I thought that was so cool on Saturday night where he looks back at him after that. Rafi's going nuts and he knew exactly what was coming. And the thing about him, too, the it's so rare to see a guy with that set of skills like and he's going to be a more consistent hitter than Schwarber. But that's like the only guy we've had in recent history with the Red Sox where you have that combination of power and plate discipline. It's such a rare thing. And I like that we're seeing the beginning of this and he's really impacting the team. I guess the one gripe you'd have with him is he does have to get better on defense. He's still last in defensive run saved among first basemen. I don't see a reason he can't get better when it comes to that. Like everything else he's gotten better with. And so I'm just, I'm with you. Like that's been the best story to me, 
to me. If you asked me a couple of weeks ago, I would have told you Duran. But Casas, to your point about the middle of the lineup, you now think about this going forward. Yoshida's locked up for four years after this, who we already know the bat-to-ball skills play, and the power has been better than people thought. I'm not t- telling you he's ever going to be a 30-home run guy, but the power has been really good. He can hit doubles. The Rafael Devers situation, we'll get into him later. He's been red held as well. So you know you have Yoshida, you have Devers, and you have Casas. If you look at Casas and Devers, they're going to hit in the middle of the lineup for the foreseeable future, and the Duran thing looks real. So, I mean, we're talking about four guys right there that are sorted to your point about this team coming together, core guys going forward, and it just makes it so much easier to build a team when you have that where you can say, okay, what we need is a starting pitcher this offseason. You don't have to be constantly plugging holes, especially when you have anchors of the lineup, because think about it with Casas Endeavors, you're going to have two bombers that both are probably going to have at the same time, multiple times, 30 home run seasons, right? And then you're going to have a guy in Yoshida that's going to have an on-base percentage that's hovering around 380 to 390, and he's going to hit well over 300, and he doesn't strike out. So you're going to have, really, those three players are just so essential going forward. We knew what Devers was, but the other two, Yoshida showing up and doing his thing, and now Casas coming into his own, it's just so big for building this organization going forward, especially considering... The guy that plays shortstop at the minor league level, Marcelo Meyer is going to come up probably at some point next year as well. And then you're talking about another building block. Yeah. And like, that's the stuff you dream on when you talk about a high bloom vision that, you know, you're not handing out all these super contracts. Obviously you pay Devers, but having all these guys under cost control for the most part, Duran, uh, you know, Yoshida five years, 90 million. That's not bad for the way he's performing. It's a bargain, right? Uh, but he's underpaid as well. Yeah, I'll throw in Connor Wong, you know, into that conversation yeah. who, you know, it's a different expectation with the bat. We know, but he leads all of baseball and catchers caught stealing above average. Like the arm strength is legit. He needs to work on the framing. That That's reality. But to have that kind of guy where the bar is so low for catcher and you have Kyle Teal, who you just drafted, that could be something you really look at and get excited about. So, yeah, I, I think that's the stuff you dream on here. If you're a Red Sox fan and why you should be excited about everything going forward. And, you know, you play the position player side of this thing. How many holes are there really to fill moving forward now? Trevor Story is going to come back here and say he doesn't hit to the level he did in Colorado. That's a fair assumption at this point. You know you're going to get really good defense. He's already looked strong at shortstop, as we've seen down there. The arm's fine. You're telling me you're worried about Trevor Story. Well, the elbow was hurt. They fixed it. And now he can make the throws again. So these guys all emerging, it just makes it easier to do everything moving forward. It feels like going into next year, they really have that competitive window opening up. And I, I think that's all you can ask for at this point in Bloom's tenure where, you know, they took a major step back last year because the luxury tax situation, they fumbled the foundation, letting Xander go when they could have got him for five years, 150 during spring training. Maybe there's even a brighter horizon ahead where. You could say, all right, well, yeah, you had to take a, one step back, but it might have been for two or three forward. Yeah, and the thing about story, and you know what, maybe, and I was with you on the Bogarts thing, maybe they didn't fumble that. Maybe in it, hindsight, it, they're going to be proven yeah. correct because he's had issues in terms of his health, and we know at the end of his tenure here, he had issues with health, and the power numbers continue to go down, so maybe they end up being proven correct about that. Now, the way they handled it from a PR perspective was, <laughs> was not great, Awful. but... Yeah, they may be right about this long term. So you mentioned Story, who's making his way back. And obviously, the numbers, as you alluded to, maybe they don't get back to what they were in Colorado. They weren't great last year. But I had Core on the pod a couple of weeks ago, and he agreed with me that he was their best hitter with runners in scoring position. By most of the numbers, like he was still really productive with runners in scoring position. And 
He was number two on the team. Not that it was a huge bar to cross, but he was number two on the team in home runs last season. And he only played in like around 90 games. And I just look at the fact that his numbers against lefties from 17 to 2021. So before he came over, 47 bombs, fourth, 58 doubles, second, slug 625, which is third. The OPS was third as well. So I'm actually starting to expect now that he's healthy and now that he's coming back to a team where, and I know that you can say, well, he's got a big contract, although in the grand scheme of things, it's not a big contract across the sport right now. But hey, they're expecting him to do big things. I, I really don't think that's the expectation for him to come back because this offense is hitting the shit out of the ball right now. I think what he comes back to is elite level defense. And I actually think he's going to, at the very least, provide them some thump in the offense. I actually think he is going to be a, I don't want to say a huge contributor because I think that's, you know, getting your timing back this late, it's tough to do. But I think he's going to contribute to this theme. And I think that now, looking at this contract long term, obviously the first two years, unless the Red Sox have this incredible run in the postseason or something, the first two years of the contract are kind of lost. But this contract is going to age well, I believe, because he's an elite athlete. The guy's a really athletic guy. It's that athleticism. It sets a higher floor for the player, because like you said, if you're going to give me a you know pretty elite defense at shortstop, plus what he does on the base pass, where he is one of the better base stealers in baseball, he may not be at the very top of steals, but he doesn't get thrown out. He's just really good at picking his spots. And with the new rules we see, all these guys are taking advantage of it. So if he's hitting, you know, call it 20 to 25 jacks, we know Fenway's made for him for his swing. Elite defense, 20 to 25 jacks and 20 stolen bases. He's going to have no problem living up to that contract. And it gives you a little breathing room when it comes to Marcelo Meyer as well, right? Then you're going to have to have a conversation about what you do with Story moving him to second at that time. But I think Story coming up now, and if he can kind of solidify himself, it allows you to raise some questions about that big move you're going to make with trade capital. What's the Bloom move that's going to resemble the, we're about to compete, this is our World Series window. I think Nick York is the name that comes up a lot. Like, what are you mm. going to do with him? Well, yeah. Trevor Story, Marcel Meyer, you look at Nick York and you say, is there really a home for you? You can say that all the way down to Mikey Romero if you really want to. And you can kind of say, all right, here's the trade capital. Now it's time for Bloom to strike while the iron's hot, especially well, with that, the deadline coming up right now. Yeah, and we'll get into that in a second, but that's what, they, what they've been working towards, right? Where you have surplus in your farm system. That's what has made the Dodgers into this team where they're fine with trading away guys because it's they always have another guy on the way. And that's what the Red Sox are trying to been building it's not like when you acquire prospects and in the draft it's not just about like hey what does this guy eventually do with the team it's like oh we have too many corner infielders or we have too many middle infielders and these guys are better than anybody in this other organization so let's go get a major league player for those guys so that's part of the calculus as well uh speaking of young guys bayo so he's been tremendous he gives up the bomb to elbies on wednesday night but still gives you six innings and three earned against the best offense in major league baseball the, definitely the most dangerous offense now the interesting thing here is and He's been really good overall, but the LB's home run, that was on a two-seamer. The Harris double before that, two batters before that, a four-seamer. And you look at it, since the 29th of April, since he was permanently put in the rotation, ground ball rates at 56.1%, which is third among starters. It was even better than that last night. He's been great. The one concern, though, is his fastball against lefties. Now, we did see five cutters last night, two of them in the first inning. He had thrown 14 all season prior to that. Cora actually mentioned on the ESPN broadcast that it's something that he's been working on because the four-seamer, 311 opponent's batting average, 420, uh, the expected slug is over 500, I believe. The launch is, the one thing is like his launch angle on that, which it's over 22 degrees, which is like, this is a ground ball pitcher, right? So that's the one thing that sticks out. And then the two-seamer, 498 expected slug. So even 
that has not been particularly great. So that's the one thing that I'd say that if you're, I don't even care that he doesn't strike out a lot of guys because he gets all these ground ball outs. It doesn't really matter to me. And the stuff's like, it's not like it's a lack of stuff, right? That that's the reason he's getting all these ground ball outs. Guys get on top of it and they just bash the ball into the ground. I don't even care what the hard hit rate is if everything's going to be on the ground, right? But the one concern would be long-term is can he develop a more effective fastball or does he just try to work in this cutter more because the cutter I mean the velocity on the cutter is pretty good so that's the one thing I'm going to be tracking the rest of the season because obviously we saw in the Oakland start like the A's were on it and that's the A's so they got to be better from a game plan perspective and look part of it is uh, you mentioned the other day or you mentioned to me on Twitter like basically the stuff moves so much so how do you control it but I do think that's one thing that if you're looking to nitpick Bayo's season that would be it. Of course. And let's be real. I think that's where it gets lost a little bit. You get so excited when he's going out there like he did seven straight quality starts, six, seven innings in a world where starting pitchers don't do that today. He is really an old school pitcher in a modern game. Uh, But that cutter, you know, he got so much praise. It is really new to him. Like Cora said, it. he started working with the in-between starts. The next start, he started incorporating (laughs) it like that speaks to me as for a guy who's that young, who's willing to take those risks, but also learn. Holy crap. Those are the guys you want to mold in your pitching development and see where it takes you. Now it's Dave Bush, so I don't know how far it's really going to get you. I'll add that to the equation. (laughs) Not to take any shots here. But yeah, it's like a 366 ERA. The FIPS 399 or 444, actually, excuse me. That command right there, that's what he has to work on. I think that's the difference between projecting him as that true number one long term. Because there are some days where he goes out there and you can tell he's having a little bit hard time. Getting guys out quickly, it's a lot of deep counts, a lot of that different stuff. But when you're a ground ball pitcher, the double plays can bail you out, even if you let a couple of those guys on. It's a fair criticism. It's just something I think you have to expect a guy to work on through this period. And maybe another reason why they could use a little bit more stability in the starting rotation. But yeah, I I think overall, it's been such a successful year for Bayo. I'm just happy to see he's continuing to work on these things and they're recognizing them. Because if they weren't, then you have a real problem here. This is a guy who's shown he's going to get better as time goes along. Yeah, and I wanted to get to Rafi because if you look at Rafi, of course, he's sort of taken Bayo under his wing, become a leader of this team, and obviously that's been great, and you expect that from a guy that's making north of $300 million that he's going to become a leader, but part of the reason the Red Sox have been so great, we mentioned Casas has been red hot, Yoshida's been red hot, Duran's been red hot, but Rafi's been red hot as well. It really goes back for a while, and we saw he golfed one out against one of the best pitchers in Major League Baseball, Spencer Strider. I mean, there's very few guys that can hit that ball First of all, they can get to that ball, but secondarily have the power to then hit it out of the ballpark. Like there's probably a handful of guys that can actually do that. But now after the slow start, numbers wise, he's at 25 bombs tied for seventh, 76 RBIs. That's fifth. And we've seen that really since the 21st of June, that's when everything sort of that's where he got red hot. It's 110 plate appearances, 26 games, eight bombs, 347 over 110 plate appearances, 418. Uh, on base 12, 653 slug is eighth. And the big thing during this stretch is he had a lot of bad luck early with lefties. And if you look at it during the stretch, it's 33 plate appearances. He's 13 of 30, 433 slugging 800. Before the 21st, he had 91 plate appearances against lefties. He hit just 234 with a 297 on base percentage. And if you look at a lot of these hits, it was uh, a lot of these outs he was making. It was like, oh, it's a, 101 mile an hour ball that the left fielder catches or the right fielder catches so finally and I felt like eventually this is going to turn with Devers the only critique I had of Rafi early in the season it's like dude 
would you mix in a walk? Like in, what was it, the month of May, he had walked like three times. And Cora said on multiple occasions, like when he's taking walks, that's when he's at his best. But I do feel like things have finally turned for Rafi. And part of the reason that this offense has been so good is Rafi's red hot. And also I do feel like there was more protection this year than there was last year. Like, and I love Bogarts as a player and I love JD as a player, but guys were not scared of those guys last season. And JD's having a great year in LA. I'm not trying to take anything away from him, but they weren't scared of the power with those guys. Remember JD was hitting all these balls to right center field that would just die. At, at one point he was complaining about the ball. Remember like he was, he thought it was something to do with the baseball. And look, maybe he's right about that. I, I don't know. But the point being is, only te teams are only concerned about Rafi. Like, how do we get Rafi out? And now it's like, well, you got Yoshida, you got Casas. Like, now there's more to deal with. A hundred percent. Like, you look at the difference between this year's lineup and last year's lineup, you can't even compare them. Uh, you know, JD, it's awesome seeing what he's doing. I'm happy to have Justin Turner because they've been basically just as valuable as each other, doing it different ways. Obviously, average OBP for Turner. JD Martinez is hitting homers. This doesn't happen unless he's reunited with his hitting coach. That's just the reality of that situation. And Bogarts, as you mentioned earlier, the wrist thing, it's legit. The power sapped, that's a problem. I think with Rafi, I never really freaked out too much because you look through all his data, nothing had changed. He was hitting the ball as hard as ever, really. Right. And not to simplify it too much, but the Babbitt was 277. We're talking about even including that for his career is 315. More, really, it was closer to 330 for his career for a guy who hits the ball so hard. It's bad luck. You're just hitting it into the wrong spots. Like you said, at times, he does get a little bit in the middle fastballs were beating him for a stretch this season. Feels like he goes through that about every single year at this point, but he shows the ability to make adjustments. If you're telling me the biggest thing with Rafael Devers that I'm disappointed in this year, it's the defense. Uh, he got off to a really strong yeah. sense in that department. And, you know, I was giving credit to him. I was like, this is what I want to see out of you because we know the range is there. It's never a limitation. It's just seems more focused, really. You know, last night, right? He had two balls skip right by oh. him. And it's like, come on, man. Those are the simple plays right at you. It's 18th percentile outs above average for all those people that were lining up and saying, you know, Devers is going to be a DH in three years. Well, I don't think that's the case. Playing like that starts to paint a picture like that because we know where the Red Sox are and where some of their things coming forward are. They put such an emphasis on defense. We've seen their issues this year alone in that department. If he becomes more of a butcher out there as he ages. Then the context of the contract changes. Yeah, and I don't know why he keeps doing this thing where he like backs up. He keeps doing that with it's it's really puzzling to me and perplexing. I don't understand why he's doing that. But yeah, and you're I'll fair to criticize to that, the defense like the attacking the ball. That was the main thing when they sent him and Bogarts home going into 2022. It was to attack the ball. Stop backing up on yeah. it. And credit to them. Look at what's happened to Xander's defense. Like when you yeah. talk about where you miss Xander Bogarts, if you had that defense right now, you probably have a wild card spot. That's the reality of it. Oh um, yeah, and I especially when Kike was there. Yeah, I would have never been the person to give love to Xander Bogart's defense. No one shit on him more for that than me before they fixed him, and it worked. Devers, I don't know what he has to do, or if it's another offseason of it. I don't think it's a conditioning problem. I, I don't. I don't think it's anything like that. No. I think it's simply just focus and being consistent. You know, we talk about Nick Pavetta a little bit. It's between the ears, between the ears with Devers on this stuff. Yeah, I agree with you. It's it's a focus thing, but I don't know if it's gonna get. It should get better but I don't know if it's going to get significantly better because we've now seen this for a couple of years now where one like he looked really good last year at times and then it starts going in the other direction I know he's dealing with an injury and this year from a defensive perspective it has been disappointing but you mentioned Turner in there and I almost feel like since all these other guys have had these great seasons it's almost gone under the radar 
Since the start of June with runners in scoring position, with a minimum of 45 plate appearances, he has 35 RBIs. That's six more than any other player. He has 22 hits, two more than any other player. And you just look at his numbers in totality. One of the things I love about him is 4.30 pitches per plate appearance, ninth in Major League Baseball. And it's almost like we haven't seen this in a while where he, there's so many pitches he swings at where he's not even trying to put them in play. But he's so good with his bat-to-ball skills where he's just like, all right, I'm going to follow this away. I'm going to follow this away until I get my pitch. And speaking of the runners in scoring position, he comes up with that big hit on Wednesday night to give the Red Sox the lead for good. I just feel like the big thing with him and the difference with him and J.D., I think part of it is Turner's great for this culture right now. Like, he fits perfectly into the clubhouse. And we know J.D.'s he's kind of a weird guy. He's down there. And look, he was great for the Red Sox in 18, had a great stretch, but he's watching his video, like that type of stuff. With Justin Turner, it does feel like He's really taken on to sort of a leadership role in this clubhouse. And just the fact that you know, whether it's the first inning, the third inning, the seventh, the ninth, whatever it is, you're going to get a quality at bat. I think that's so huge for this team, especially when you have all these boppers in the lineup as well, making a pitcher work before they have to face Rafi or before they have to face Trishan Casas. It's just been a massive addition to this team. I like the addition from the beginning. And He's been, I would say, better than advertised, quite frankly, based on, and I know he's dealing with some stuff last year, but his numbers from a power perspective last year are way down. He's been much better this year. Yeah, we're talking a guy who was also 38, right? And I was in the same camp as you were. I really liked the signing, but there was a large portion of people that weren't. I think when you talk the leadership aspect, uh, Jared made a really great point on this a couple months ago, and I think it's the right way to paint it. JD's a guy, if you walk up to him and you say, hey, can you help me with this? He's going to help you. Justin Turner, we'll see a guy struggling, put his arm around him and say, hey, you know, I've been there. I remember when I was that guy with the Mets and I was a utility guy and they were trying to figure out where I was going to go. And Duran's talked about what it's meant to him to have someone like Justin Turner. But the player and what he's been able to give you defensively, is it always the smoothest? No, I'll crap on his first base defense plenty. But J.D. Martinez, the last couple of years, how many times did Alex Cora really have no problem saying it to the media? He can't go out there and play, and it really limits us as a roster. Had no problem doing it, and we know he liked J.D. Justin Turner being able to go to first base, third base, even second base recently, it just gives them more flexibility. And when you've been just about the same hitter, and the roots of everything they've done this year, where last year's identity with J.D. Martinez, all these quick three, four pitch at bats, swinging at balls out of the zone, you don't always realize when you sign a player the stuff that does go beyond the stat sheet, right? Like, and I, we're both nerds. We like the we like the numbers and all that. Justin Turner's <laughs> plate approach and those things it goes beyond. You see, kind of how the entire lineup picks up his characteristics, and Yoshida's a big part of that as well. But when you're able to go up there and be the definition of a professional hitter every single day, it just catches guys. You know, spread it around. Everyone gets hot. I think that signing is one of the best ones Bloom has had, and. I can't remember the last time I saw a guy come over here and, you know, it'll probably be a one year kind of thing, but he'll be someone Red Sox fans always go back like they look at Adrian Beltre and say, remember that year you had, you know, Justin Turner, remember Cody Ross, like he kind of has all those vibes. And I think the impact on the field and off the field has been just as great both ways. Yeah, Victorino was a big one for me when he came over in 2013. He had the what was that? I forget, what's the name of that song that he had when he came up to the plate? Like it was he was a very entertaining player. I, I saw him recently. He was on the Nesson broadcast like when they were celebrating the 13 team. He was really good for that team. That 13 team is still like there needs to be a documentary done about them, about how they actually won the World Series. It's still, Three Little I still Birds was the song. Three, yeah, that's what it was. Exactly. I still can't believe he did it. But all right. So let's get to Verdugo because this is interesting. 119 in July. That's dead last among qualified hitters. And 
The other thing I would say is lefties this season, he's hitting 229, 333 on base, 303 slug, and a 636 OPS. And the reason I bring this up is the Red Sox, and I can't believe I'm saying this based on what we may have thought at the beginning of the season, they're deep in the outfield, right? They have Adam Duvall, they have Duran, they have Yoshida. Ref Snyder needs to play against lefties because he has the highest on-base percentage of anybody in baseball against left-handed pitching. So they have a lot of outfielders that deserve to play. And I just wonder, like, I don't think the Red Sox, and I had this conversation with Cotillo recently, would move Verdugo at the trading deadline. I don't think they're going to sign him long-term. So I think I would be more receptive to moving him than maybe the front office would be. Just, I know they want to sort of be, and I think, I don't know this for a fact, I think they want to be careful with the messaging they send because we've seen the past couple of years that has been an issue for the front office sending whatever the message is to the clubhouse. So I think they want to be careful there. But can Verdugo be a platoon guy after being like labeled as one of the stars of the team? He had the great catch on Wednesday night. I give him credit for still playing defense despite the fact that he's struggling. But I just don't know that, hey, if you're in a race to make it into the wild card situation, how can you play him against lefties? And I know we just got the two mental days before the game on Wednesday night, but and I know Corey will definitely have the balls to not play him against lefties. I just wonder how that sort of the trickle-down effect that has on the clubhouse where he came into the season thinking he was probably one of the faces of the team. It's like, dude, I have too many good players. Like, how can I hit you against left-handed pitching? And you go back, like, this was kind of the issue when he got traded here. I, I know a lot of people don't remember. Opening day 2020, Ron Renicki sat him for the platoon. Like, that was a legit conversational point. So now, and he made strides the last couple of years. I, I'm a little disappointed right now with Alex Verdugo. I, I think it's hard not to be. You know, when he got off to the start this year and, you know, there was all-star snub talk and it was fair. It was all part of the conversation at that point. You know, he was on that borderline. But you look at the stats right now, they basically profile from an offensive standpoint where he's been the last couple of years where, you know, you're a slightly above average bat. Now, the great thing is he's playing great defense in right field. So that value is there. Um, but I think from a baseball standpoint, yeah, Verdugo now it's two times he's come through the media and kind of been like, they're not talking to me about an extension. I hate to be that guy. If you're saying yeah. it twice through the media, usually that tells you how they feel about you. Uh, and the way Alex Cora and the organization kind of spoke about him at the end of the last year, I think part of it was we're frustrated he's not the player we hoped he was going to become. And you look at it right now, he's still not the player they hoped he'd become. So from a baseball standpoint, yeah, I think you have that conversation about a year and a half left to team control. What could you get? You know, you have a Sedan Raphael, who I'm not particularly high on, but you know, it's a high floor with the defense and the athleticism. He's going to be knocking on the door as well now in AAA. I think they'd be willing to hear offers, but that messaging, I do think, goes a very long way. And they're going to be scared of ruffling some of those feathers. Because if you are moving a Verdugo and then you're moving, what, an Adam Duvall and into right field and you're going to kind of pair it that way and reset, I think the Red Sox don't want to commit to Verdugo long term. They don't want to give him that Andrew Benatendi-esque contract. But yeah, I, I think it's a hard message to send in season. I think that's why they're trying to reset him. And if you did trade him right now, the value is low. Like if we're talking where he was a couple months ago, it's a different conversation. You're getting a little bit more. I think you hope he has the typical Verdugo finish where he gets hot for like that two month stretch and the numbers look a little better. But I am disappointed in Verdugo. It's hard not to be. Yeah, I am too. And it looked like he was going to have this outstanding season. And usually he's been better in the second half than he's been in the first half. And it's the opposite right now. I mean, he just cannot get it together at the plate. And he looks bad. Like he doesn't look good at all. This is Lost. not a bad luck situation like he's had in the past. He just looks bad at the plate. 
So I tweeted this out. I can't remember if it was Wednesday or Tuesday, but anyway, since the J series on the 30th of June. Now, this was today, actually. So 100.1 innings for the Red Sox bullpen. That's first. Fangraphs war their second. ERA their third. FIP their second. Strikeout rate their third. Home runs per nine their second. Win probability added their first. Seven meltdowns tied for the fewest. They just got Schreiber back, and actually on the Tuesday game, he was the opener. He wasn't even in the bullpen. Martin's been incredible. Jansen, although he made you sweat out the game on Wednesday, he, he still got it done. And we've seen that a couple of times from him it's this part year. part of but Kenley Jansen, really, right? Yeah, that, that's, I, that's what the it experience. Is. That's the experience. But he's a legitimate bona fide closer. And I just can't believe, like, and, like, they've got some guys. Uh, Bernardino's been good, right? They get these guys, you're like, who the hell is this guy? They've actually performed. I just, I can't remember a time. I guess I'd have to go back to 2018 where I'm like, I feel, like, legitimately confident in the bullpen. I mean, you look at just the numbers, the seventh through the ninth inning. This year, the ERA is second at 330, 7.9% walk rate is third. Seven through nine inning in 2022, 19th in ERA at 4.08, 8.8% walk rate, which is 18th. It just, it's really something that the Red Sox, I give Heimblum credit from this perspective. It was always, and look, he found some of these guys where it's like, hey, we like this stuff, and they brought him in and they worked, but you needed to get some proven commodities, and those guys were Martin and Jansen. So I think they really learned from what transpired last year and we're seeing the results of it. Like this bullpen is legitimate and the Red Sox have the lead after the sixth inning. They're going to win. And you look at it, there's a chance it's going to get even better. And that's what really yeah. excites me. Like you mentioned, Chris Martin, I have not remembered the last time I felt safer with a guy on the mound. It's what a 144 ERA. He's been so dominant since he came back from the shoulder injury earlier in the year. And Early on, that was looking a little wonky. I think a lot of people were like, uh, did they kind of buy a little too high to fill those bullpen spots? But, you know, for a guy in Heim Bloom where he comes from Tampa, say what you will, they don't believe in spending on relief help like that. He knew in Boston, I have money to work with it. I can't take that risk again. I know how much it sidetracked the 2022 Red Sox, especially earlier in the year. You turn around some of those losses, that whole season could have looked different for you. Um, but now you're having the conversation, especially if they go and get someone at the deadline. Well, you pick one of Hauk or Whitlock, however they want to go about it. You throw him in there as well. What Nick Pavetta has been doing. And, you know, it's a little wonky. I know he's basically starting at this point. But another guy who's been so electric since moving to the bullpen, you know, Nick Penvetta, everyone's calling him at this point. Like, I have the numbers here right in front of me. <laughs> I, I can't like it, it's between the ears, clearly, but it's 41 innings pitch, 198 ERA, 258 fit. The way Nick Pavetta looked earlier in this year. If you told me he was going to give you anything along those lines, I would have passed out, especially now working in a starter workload. But depending on what you do with the deadline, he could move into that two, three inning role. Josh Winkowski, who everybody was crapping on. No one wanted to hear about him last year. Hit hit a little bit of a wall a couple weeks ago. It looks like the all-star break let him reset. He's pumping 97, 98. I do like him in one inning burst more than multiple, but it seems like that's the role he's kind of playing. This bullpen is as dominant as you could have asked for, and it could be even better down the stretch. That's what wins you games in September and October. And that doesn't include Brian Mata. Like if Brian Mata comes back right. mid August from that last strain, I'll tell you right now, better stuff than Chris Murphy, definitely better stuff than Brandon Walter and Chris Murphy. Who the hell saw this coming? A guy who got booted out of the <laughs> rotation in triple a moved to the bullpen, <laughs> got one relief appearance, came up sub two ERA. Are you kidding me? Like, there's been so many things that went right for them this year. And if you want to just talk about Bloom spending money on the bullpen and say, well, anybody can do that three years in a row. Garrett Whitlock in 21 in 2022 was John Schreiber. This year is Brennan Bernardino. He's finding guys for cheap and spending money. 
that's how you take advantage of this market and what you're supposed to do with it. Yeah, no. And I, I love the fact that they're willing to spend on the big guys and still you can still do what you're really great at is what you are good in Tampa is finding these diamonds in the rough. And he's been able to do that as well. The Martin thing is fantastic. I mean, he's actually been better really since he came back from the IL. This is like the best he's been in his entire career. Like the hard hit rate since he came back is second among relievers. He's and he doesn't walk anybody. So to your point about feeling safe, it's just like he attacks the strike zone. It's really it's really great to watch that guy pitch. I mean, he looks like he's he looks old too, which is kind of <laughs> although he is like, what is he, six eight, I think. Like oh, he yeah. is massive. And like you add on, even some of the guys on the outside, you know, I don't have much to say about Richard Blyer, but Jolie Rodriguez, since he came off the IL, it's seven straight scoreless innings. That was a guy who yeah, looked he looks horrendous better. before. So yeah. I think you start talking at the deadline got a lot of lefties here you might be able to flip one of those guys along with Duvall or another piece to get what you want so yeah the bullpen that's a major win for Bloom this year if you learn your lessons you will survive in that job for a long time so far he's shown that at least in that sense all right so speaking of the bullpen and maybe the rotation Whitlock and Hauk making their way back Whitlock this season the 523 ERA and 51 and two-thirds Third time through has been a disaster. 409, 429, 818. And it feels like the Marlins, they were on him. Like he was predictable. They knew when the soft stuff was coming in one of his starts. He had issues with his changeup earlier this season where basically the velocity, it was way too close to the fastball velocity. Like the gap had never been narrower, if you will. And he kind of figured that out. But then he had a couple of rough outings as well. I just look at it. The changeup's actually been hit this year too. But I wonder like... Do you want him to be a multi-inning guy when he comes back? Do you want him back in the bullpen? Do you want to put him into the rotation? I just feel like at this point, like I'm not giving up on Garrett Whitlock as a starter long term, but if you're trying to chase down a wild card spot, it feels like he's been a proven reliever in the past. Would you just put him into the bullpen? It's a fair question, and I've been on the Garrett Whitlock starter train. I think, like you said, we saw it when he made the adjustment with the changeup. He took a couple ticks off. It worked. Once teams kind of saw it a few times, Marlins, they were ready to go after it. Now, what was he dealing with at that point? I don't know. That's the thing that worries me more than anything here. I do think you have a bone bruise in your elbow. Your elbow's barked twice. It's barked twice in like three months for a guy who already has a Tommy John in his history. Last time it was uh, the nerve over there. Yeah, a bone bruise was best case scenario. If the elbow's barking, clearly it's a workload kind of thing. So I don't know. I I just don't like how that situation's kind of played out and it's unfortunate. I don't blame the Red Sox for pushing him. Their medical staff believe he could handle it. That's one thing. I think what makes it hard is with Tanner Houck, he really didn't do much to show you, oh, I'm a starting pitcher either. They yeah. were kind of in a similar boat with the ups and downs. I think you can argue Whitlock probably had the best little stretch out of the two of them, you know, right before he started getting hit at the end. But pick your poison, because if you move Tanner Houck to the bullpen, what he did for you last year, he was electric out there and he was closing yeah. games for you at one point. I think if I'm the Red Sox, I just say, all right, well, if you don't have to protect Garrett Whitlock, if you feel like medically he's okay, sure, let, let him go out there and do his thing, and you can push Tanner Houck to the bullpen. But if he ends up getting hurt again, it's an awful look for the organization because you're just putting a guy in a position that you know, his body can't handle. Yeah, and historically, all his injuries come when he's a starter, not when he's in the bullpen. So that's part of it as well. All right, so Chris Sale, I saw you tweet out earlier that Sale says, I forget who you got the quote from, but Sale says that he basically, he's cool with being an opener. Um, With Sale, I love that he has these quotes all the time, but I said earlier, a couple of months ago on the pod, like when he first got hurt, I'm just, 
preparing myself as if Chris Sale doesn't exist. And then when he comes back and he pitches well, I'm just going to be happy instead of, because I was all in on Chris Sale this season. I thought he was going to be tremendous. He's been now a couple years removed from the Tommy John, and he was. I mean, the last five starts before he got injured, 298 FIP, 223 ERA, 28.5% strikeout rate, which was fourth during that stretch among starters. And the hard hit rate, the ball's up to that 95 plus, 25.9%, which was second. He was great. But here's the question, Milliken. Is he going to be a factor down the stretch? Do you believe he will where now he's coming back from a shoulder situation? Uh, shout out Katie Morrison for the quote, by the way. Doing great stuff down Okay, there thank you for that. Um, I, I know I always throw it in weird spots in the tweets. But yeah, I, I'll tell you right now, I do think Chris Hale is going to be a major factor here. The layoff hasn't been as long as it was previously. Like He did get a nice, what, 11-start stretch? And those starts, it was really for over a month, he was Chris Sale. We're not talking about a guy who's getting by on luck or anything like that. The velo was ticking up and up. Do I question whether the Red Sox maybe pushed him a little too hard? Yeah, I, I do. He was working in the seventh inning frequently, and the kid gloves came off. Cora was like, hey, we need the innings at that point. That's when the starting pitching was in a really bad spot. Those Chris, those Chris Sale starts were everything for the team. They were kind of keeping them afloat through certain stretches. But if I'm the Red Sox right now, Next year, you do have him under control for one more year. You don't know what's left for him. Just let him air it out. I'd bring him up, you know, rather quickly. I wouldn't even wait for him to get fully stretched out. It would resemble 2018 to me in some ways. He has a rehab assignment that he's most likely going to start in Tuesday on Tuesday, but he only has so many bullets. That's where Chris Sale is at at this point. I'd get him close to, you know, two or three innings, whatever it is. If you're already using an opener two days, screw it. Let him go out there and do the same thing. And they're going to do that with one of Helk or Whitlock anyways. So yeah, take advantage of those bullets. Let him build up. And as long as medically he can handle it or they think he can handle it. Sure. It's a, it's a ticking time bomb. We we know what it is at this point, but you know, for a month and a half, if you can get what you got for really two months to start the season, that could completely change the entire playoff race for them. Yeah, I'm with you, too. Let him build up at the major league level. Why not? I mean, you're in the middle of trying to get a wild card spot here, so you might as well. All right, so Milliken, before we let you go here, you mentioned or Heim Bloom had mentioned that they're looking to trade for pieces that are controllable. And you mentioned two guys, Dylan Cease and Mitch Keller. Now, both these guys kind of in the same position where Keller's got two years of arbitration left. Cease has two years of arbitration left after this as well. Now, Cease's numbers are down a little bit, but still the strikeout rate is 10th among starters. We know the stuff is nasty. Keller is second in Major League Baseball among starters in hard hit rate behind only Corbin Burns, and some of his expected numbers are actually a lot better than his actual numbers this season. He's had some bad luck. Dylan Cease, I feel like that would cost you a lot to go after him, and I don't know if Keller would be the same, but do you see Bloom getting involved in any of these type of guys, or do you think it's sort of the guy that we saw pitch not well last night in Lance Lynn, like that type of pitcher that the Red Sox would go after. Like, is there any chance they get into the sweep, uh, the cease sweepstakes, if you will? That's very tough to say. So I think with Dylan Cease at this point, it seems like the White Sox are pretty against pushing him out there as a trade chip. And I, I think they'll listen. Like, if you want to send something over, sure, they'll take the call. But they want to compete, and they're a disaster organization. So they probably do think yeah. they're only one year away in all reality. Uh, so maybe you're having this conversation again a year from now. But for Dylan Cease... I, any of those top tier arms, because I think with the Red Sox and what happened this year, I think we agreed on this, Brian, when we talked earlier in the year, we said this team was going to go as far as the rotation took them. We were all saying Whitlock, Bayo, like those guys need to be your anchors moving forward and prove themselves. Well, the truth is, while a lot of the position side stuff figured itself out, the rotation didn't. The rotation's still very blurry for next year for a team that's going to be competing. 
you know, Cutter Crawford, yep. he's a fine back end arm. And you got Bayo here. Who knows what's going to end up happening with Paxton if they try to work out an extension or the QO him or whatever that is. You know, I don't think he's going to be moved at this point unless maybe they get one of these, you know, super controllable arms and they use some of those parts to do it. But I don't think it's going to be Dylan Cease. Mitch Keller is the name I look to because I think he's what they hoped Garrett Whitlock was going to be or what they hoped he would turn into. And, you know, like you said, the ERA is like a little over four. He's been roughed up the last couple starts. So I do think he's better than that. That's someone who's not a free agent until 2026. You can go and say, all right, well, you know, it's not a apples to apples comparison. But when they went and got a Josh Beckett, someone that they had team control of and said, all right, we're trying to anchor this rotation for next year when we really push in and go that way. He's someone who could fill the gap of the lost development of Garrett Whitlock. Logan Gilbert, John Morosi tweeted out quoting him a little bit. That's another name that fits in that same box. Mm. A young arm that you can kind of lean on. If you want to go to the cheaper side, it's probably like a Paul Blackburn. Doesn't do much for me, but right now with where their rotation is, getting a decent back end starter would probably go a long way. I think the most likely thing is they're going to go get a very cheap rental, a la a Rich Hill or something like that. Basically make good on the Corey Kluber deal. Sean McAdam had connected him to the Red Sox recently and say, hey, we're just looking for someone who's going to hold the fort down for two weeks. Get us to Whitlock and Houck and Sale and we'll see where this team takes us because we don't want to go over the luxury tax. And the hardest thing to acquire in today's game, cost controlled pitching. Nobody wants to give it up. Just where I would sit and stand is at some point, Heim has to deal a couple of these prospects away, a couple of these chips. I don't know if York and Rafaela's stock is ever going to be higher than what it is right now. I think Rafael is someone I don't love once he gets to the big leagues. There's issues with the chase rate. Nick York's already dealing with an injury right now and got off to a really hot start in double A, has slowed down a little bit. This might be the time to capitalize before they become assets that, you know, aren't going to get you as much. You got to use some of these chips. Interesting. I wonder if he'd hold on to those type of chips until the offseason rather than the trading deadline. Unless unless it's like if it's cease, I mean, that's to- that's a totally different conversation where it's like, OK, this guy can be he proved it last year. I mean, he's in the Cy Young conversation. He can legitimately be a top end of the rotation guy. So we'll see if he makes that type of move. But I think that that move and not cease in particular, and maybe cease, maybe they put cease on the trading block in the offseason. I think that type of big time prospects that you have in the organization, even like you said, you're not high on them, but they're considered to be like big time prospects that you may wait. Yeah. And like, I don't picture, uh, I want to make this clear. I, I don't picture them dealing those guys for a rental. I'd be absolutely yeah, shocked right. at this point if something like that happened. And I think Bloom's been, you know, pretty clear for a guy that never shows his hand. He keeps telling you it's about this core moving forward. They're not going to go over the luxury tax after this mistake from the past year. And you look at the deal that happened last night with Giolito and Ronaldo Lopez. Uh, oh, my God. Yeah, it's a seller's market. This is very similar to 2021 in a lot of ways where yeah. Edward Kiro, he's the number 84 prospect on Baseball America's top 100. That's like Miguel Blaise right now. And, you know, you go beyond that. York just fell out the 100. You look at different lists. Rafaela's around 80. York's on 80, I think, with Pipeline. So those are the pieces plus something you're going to give up, like a Luis Perales, who you asked me, I think he's the best pitching prospect in the system. That's a lot for Bloom. I don't see him going that route. But if you do go get, you know, a Keller, a Gilbert, somehow you pull off a cease deal, it works because you are setting up for the following year. And maybe the Tigers a year ago, obviously, it's a different front office. Is it a Scooble who just came back and you can try to buy in on that and say, hey, we're going to overwhelm you. Give him Brandon Woodruff, who's working his way back. Hey, you guys keep Corbin Burns. You're not going to be selling everything off, but you got to do a little bit of both. Uh, you know, Mike, Gro- you know, Mike Groupman came over from the Brewers front office a couple years ago. 
been really the biggest name Bloom's brought over from that front office. We remember the Hunter Renfro trade. We don't want to, but we do. Uh, so there's a little bit of a connection there. I want to see Heim Bloom get creative. That's the biggest thing for me here. I've yet to see that trade where you know he's pushing his chips in and really going for something. It needs to happen either now or in the offseason. Why not do it now where you can make the last couple months really interesting and build that momentum for a young core going into a big you know, competitive window? Yeah, Woodruff, now you got me thinking, man. I mean, yeah, you excited because be, that's yeah, stuff that, that can transform this team. Yeah, and that, the other big thing is, I mean, you look at this American League. I mean, the National League, you get some teams where it's like, okay, that's like the Braves, who I, the Red Sox just swept. But you look at the AL, it's like, well, the Rays kind of had their moment. They're not great anymore. The Astros, they're the Astros, but are they really the Astros anymore? Like, they're not the same team they've been in recent years. So there's not really a team that scares you in the American League. And my whole thing about this is just fucking get in because we saw the Phillies make it to the World Series a couple of years or last year, right? I mean, we saw the Nationals in 19. Like, the you Braves can, in 21. Yeah. If you Red get Sox in, in 21. Yeah, right. I right. mean, if you get in, you have an opportunity, especially, I mean, Core is a proven postseason manager as well. I mean, he's been really good when he gets to the postseason. All right, that is Tyler Milliken from 98.5, the sports sub, the name redacted pod as well. Milliken, thank you so much for the time, and it was a ton of fun. And hey, we'll have you on again before the end of the season, and hopefully they do something at the deadline here. Fingers crossed. Heim, I've been a supporter. Give me another reason why. Please, make, the, <laughs> make life easy for the Bluminati. That's all I'm asking. <laughs> all right, great stuff, Milliken. Thank you, my man. This episode is brought to you by Lululemon. Guys, if you're ready for a new pair of pants, try one of Lululemon's ABC pants. They're made to make you look and feel good. And there's lots of different styles to choose from. My favorite, because I walk around LA every day, I like the joggers. I'm not jogging, I'm just walking fast. But if you're working out, I would try them out. And if you want something a little sleek, maybe business-like, maybe try the ABC Slim Fit Trouser. But I am a joggers guy. I just once COVID happened, I was just like, I'm, I want to wear jogging pants and joggers and all kinds of soft pants as much as I possibly can, especially when I'm working out. Ultra comfortable and versatile. ABC pants are really in a league of their own. Buy a pair right now at lululemon.com. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. If you're busy like me and you're trying to catch your kids' games, it's important to have somewhere where you can go to find a good hotel. We're all over the place. Sometimes you know, we're in Florida, we'll be in New York. You want to take the wife on a quick vacation and get away? Whether you're looking for a relaxing getaway or heading out of town to see the playoffs, Hotels.com app has a perfect hotel for every trip. Compare up to five hotels side by side so you can see prices, amenities, and star ratings without having to switch back and forth between options. So start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app today. Welcome back into Off the Pike. we got time for a couple of calls. Great stuff there from my buddy Tyler Milliken from the Sports Hub. The Red Sox have been very entertaining, man. No doubt about it. Love watching this Red Sox team right now. And they don't lose in those yellow uniforms, the Boston Strong uniforms. Maybe they should just wear those the rest of the season. All right, let's get to a couple of calls, though. That number is 617-396-7172. Who's up first? Hey, Brian. This is Scott in New Hampshire. Uh, what did you think about Mookie telling Brock Holt he never wanted to leave Boston? Uh, to me, honestly, it feels a little disingenuous. You know, he reportedly turned down everything the Sox offered him because he supposedly wanted to test free agency. But then he signed a 12-year, I think $365 million contract with the Dodgers, you know, five months after being traded. You know, I think the Sox only offered him $300 million, but I don't think the number of years was ever confirmed. So, you know, the average value could have been comparable or even higher. You know, I've always felt like the Sox, thought he was likely to walk and 
they only traded him because they didn't want to lose him for nothing, as tough as it is to move on from a franchise player like that. Anyway, what are your thoughts? Yeah, it's a great point, Scott. And it's interesting because the Red Sox did offer the same money in terms of the annual average value. And I don't want to say that Mookie is a lie or anything along those lines. And maybe he did really want to stay in Boston long term. I mean, it would be totally different if like from Mookie's perspective, he says, I never wanted to be in Boston. That's why I am in L.A. now that he would have like people here would have been like, oh, this is fucking bullshit. They would have hated that Mookie actually said that. So it doesn't really behoove Mookie to say, hey, I wanted to get out of Boston. Right. And there may be some truth to what he's saying. Maybe he really did want to be a member of this Red Sox organization long term. And there is sort of some sense that, and I know people have the belief that Mookie didn't want to be here, okay? I don't know exactly what Mookie wanted or did not want. This is what I will say, though, is the the Red Sox stopped at that $300 million number, right? Like, they could have made him the highest paid player in the sport. You say, oh, you're going to pay him more than Trout? Well, sometimes you have to do that if you want to keep him here. Like, Jalen Brown just signed a super max contract. I get it's different than baseball is, right? And, like, the quarterback position in the NFL it's different in terms of it, you don't have to comply with like certain rules, like the supermax contracts, et cetera. But they were in a place where they felt like it was better off to move on from Mookie. I think they didn't want to go to free agency and get embarrassed. So the only two choices they had, A, blow them over with the offer, right? Where it's just like it's $400 million, set the record for the highest contract in Major League Baseball or trade them. So unfortunately, they were in a bad spot. And remember, if you go back to the year prior, there was some thought that, hey, maybe they would actually trade him during that season if he wasn't willing to sign an extension. I mean, I just think about it from this perspective. I would have done everything I possibly can. And obviously, I'm not the one signing the checks to keep Mookie Betts around because that's a guy that you go to watch each and every night. Now, here's the thing. I don't want to get caught. I've talked about Mookie a lot in the pod. I don't want to talk about him right now because the Red Sox are playing so well. But I understand the point, And I do understand where you're saying it could be disingenuous for Mookie, where Mookie could say, yeah, I never wanted to leave Boston, but it would have required $400 million. And we also have to factor this in. A global pandemic hit when Mookie signed with the Dodgers. So this whole idea of like, hey, see, see, Mookie never wanted to be here because he signed for less than 400 or whatever it was, the 365 right when he got to the Dodgers. Well, part of that could have been he's factoring in the pandemic part of that where he's like, OK, let me get the money now. So look, maybe the Red Sox hold on to him a little longer. Does he sign that? Probably not. But you understand the point where it's like shifting probably changed for Mookie as well. Like there is a really good chance that Mookie just gets to free agency if there is not a global pandemic. Instead, he locks up the long term security. He may have said, I'm still going to go to free agency because that was one thing I do know that Mookie wanted to do was to get to free agency. And that changed. And the only thing that changed in the world <laughs> was the pandemic. So maybe that was part of the calculus as well. All right. Who's up next? Hey, Brian. It's uh, Zach from Rochester. I know it's that uh, training camp just started, but. I'm getting kind of excited for week one. You know, am, am I the only one who thinks that the Patriots are probably going to win that game against the Eagles? I mean, I, I know they made the Super Bowl last year, but we all know the track record of teams that lose the Super Bowl the next year. Uh, and I think that uh, Belichick's going to have the entire team ready to go for this game. Uh, and I think he's going to be cooking up uh, his best game plan. I think he's going to be throwing fastballs, curveballs, Thinkers. I mean, I think he may even throw in some knuckleballs. Uh, I, <laughs> I think they're going to win this game because uh, I think this is their chance to come out and say, hey, we're here, uh, we're a contender, and we're, we may just win the AFC East. Now, they'll probably lose some games to, like, 
some lowly team later on in the season, but I, I think the team's going to come up for this game. Uh, what do you think? Okay, so to your first question, yes, you're the only person that thinks they're going to beat the Eagles on opening weekend. Unless Brady decides to play, I don't see how they win that game because, of course, Brady's getting honored before the game. Now, I have some optimism with the Patriots. I've been through it on the pod before. Love this defense. Would have loved them to get a number one receiver. But I think the Patriots, like the gap between them and the rest of the teams in the division, the perception is the quarterback, right? That's why they're, what, plus 755 or plus 750 at last check or from our friends at FanDuel as it pertains to that. So... I understand that, and I do think that they're going to be much better than they were last season just based on having the coordinator. So could they sneak into the playoffs? Yeah, it's a possibility. The problem for them is just the schedule is so difficult, and it's going to be tough to win 10 games in this division when you have to play the Dolphins twice. You can basically put in a loss. you got to play the Bills twice, and you got to play the Jets twice as well. So that would be my concern, and this Eagles team is really good. I mean, they're a well-oiled machine, so it's going to be very difficult to beat them in week one, I, I can't see them win, win in the division. Like if I was going to if I was going to pick a team after the Bills, it would be Miami. I think Miami is better than the Jets. I know the Jets have Rodgers, but Miami, that whole team is loaded right now. And we'll see what happens with this Jalen Ramsey situation because he got carted off in practice. I mean, that would change the calculus a little bit. But overall, I, I think you're getting a little ahead of yourself in terms of what you think of the Patriots entering the season. Like if they were in a different division, could totally understand why you thought this. Like if they were in the South. Yeah, they could win the division, maybe. I mean, I know Jacksonville, the up-and-comer, and Trevor Lawrence, but yeah, they may have had a possibility to win that division. If they were in the South in the NFC, they may have a chance to win the division. But the problem for them is they're in the AFC East, East for which for so many years, this is the worst division in the NFL, right? It was like the Patriots had no competition. Now, all of a sudden, it's like it's the best division in the NFL. I guess you could argue that or the West, although the Raiders fucking sucks. Uh, I don't know what to make of the Broncos. I mean, Sean Payton's out here saying Nathaniel Hackett was the worst coach in the history of the NFL, which is just crazy. I don't know if coaches did that to each other. I still can't believe he said that. But nonetheless, I mean, I just think it's going to be difficult to win a ton of games in this division. And so I think the Patriots have an opportunity to get into the postseason, but I'm not as high on them as you are. All right. As always, make sure to get your voicemails in 617-396-7172. Email your thoughts and questions to offthepike at gmail.com. Thanks to Jamie McClellan and Steve Cerruti for producing this podcast, and we'll talk in a couple of days. Must be 21 plus and present in select states. FanDuel is offering online sports wagering in Kansas under an agreement with Kansas Star Casino, LLC. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit FanDuel.com slash RG in Colorado, Iowa, Michigan, New Jersey, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Illinois, Tennessee, and Virginia. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP or text Next Step to 53342 in Arizona, 1-888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org slash chat in Connecticut. 1-800-9-WITH-IT in Indiana, 1-800-522-4700 or visit ksgamblinghelp.com in Kansas, 1-877-770-STOP in Louisiana, visit mdgamblinghelp.org in Maryland, visit 1800gambler.net in West Virginia, call 1-800-522-4700 in Wyoming, hope is here, visit gamblinghelplinema.org or call 800-327-5050 for 24-7 support in Massachusetts or call one 877 8 Hope and Wire text Hope. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. 
You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.